everyone. Welcome back to Finding the Center. It's me, Joseph, and I want to thank you for being here. You know, I wanted to just catch up on, obviously, I guess, the biggest story in the news, impeachment. And there is a lot going on. So the Senate has concluded its opening statements, and they're talking about what's going on and what's going to happen next, particularly around witnesses and those types of things. And here's something that Senator Joni Ernst said from Iowa. Iowa caucuses, folks. Iowa caucuses are this next Monday evening. And I'm really interested to see how this discussion today informs and influences the Iowa caucus voters, those Democratic caucus goers. Will they be supporting Vice President Biden at this point? Now, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip. I'm not sure really what happened there. I can only imagine her staff in the background, you know, just slamming their faces against the stone walls of the Senate. But I just don't understand why you would essentially say out loud what it is that the whole impeachment hearing is essentially about. The whole point of putting the Bidens front and center and abusing his power and all of that was to impact Joe Biden's candidacy, his viability to be president. Clearly, Trump thinks that this guy is his biggest threat and therefore prioritized him in this way by calling for the investigations into him. So for her to turn around and say, gee, I wonder what's going to happen in in this election process and if it's going to impact him. Congratulations, Senator. That was the whole point. And, you know, I was watching John Dean on CNN and he was talking about how when senators realize what happened under the Nixon administration and how they've been lied to and I guess were lying on his behalf, that that was the final straw and they went over there and let him know what was what. And that led to his resignation. Now, CNN politics had a story that White House officials and Republican senators were blindsided by John Bolton's manuscript, which is odd because the reporting has talked about how the manuscript had been submitted to the White House for review weeks, if not months ago. So it's pretty clear to me that the White House was already aware of the manuscript, that they already had it. They knew what was in it because they needed to make sure that it was fine and neglected to tell the senators about that. And so I'm not so sure about White House officials being blindsided, but I'm sure that the Republican senators felt that way and were not very happy about it. And so I tweeted that this was a, a small crack in a, in a window of opportunity for the GOP to have their moment with Trump as the GOP had with Nixon all those years ago. And I don't see that happening, but this does give them the opportunity to say, all right, we're done enabling you. You had us out here looking like fools and we're taking our party back. Not sure that that's really going to happen. That's kind of a best case scenario for me um, and for what I would like to see the Republican Party do and become. However, with regards to the manuscript, Lindsey Graham is out here talking about what Senator Lankford had said, and that was that the Bolton manuscript was available or would be or could be available in a classified setting and that senators can go look at it. Now, don't believe for one moment that this manuscript is classified. It's about as classified as the call summary was. And this is just another attempt at trying to insulate and hide what really happened and what is going on and to protect Trump from accountability here. If this book was classified, there would be no book. 
and they're trying to control it in a classified setting so that Bolton, instead of him coming and testifying and it being made public, it's going to be able to be hidden and, and kept in the dark and kept in the background so that Republican senators can come out and mischaracterize it or say what they would like to say about it, kind of like how Bill Barr did when the Mueller report came out. He came out ahead of it and basically laid out a narrative that was not a fair representation of Mueller's work. It was nothing even close to the executive summaries that were within the report itself. This would be them doing that again. And it seems that there's starting to be some cracks within the Senate on what to do next with regards to witnesses. And I'm going to play two Romney clips. The first one, I want you to pay particular attention to what he says at the end. I've said for some time that I hope to be able to hear from John Bolton. I think with a story that came out uh, yesterday, it's increasingly apparent that it would be important to hear from John Bolton. Uh, I, I, of course, will make a final decision on witnesses after we've heard from not only the prosecution, but also the defense. But I think at this stage, it's pretty fair to say that uh, John Bolton has a, a relevant uh, testimony to provide to those of us who are sitting in impartial justice. You know, when I used to either write remarks or statements or whatever for my bosses, you have to ver be very careful with the words that you use. Politicians are very careful in general, particularly when you're in the Senate, right? It's the greatest deliberative body, so on and so forth. I do not believe for one second that it's a coincidence or unintentional that Romney said, those of us standing in impartial judgment. That is a direct reflection, and I would say criticism of those within the Republican Party in the Senate that are not taking this process seriously. So that was the first indicator in his statements on witnesses where I heard something where it raised my antenna, where a lot of times little phrases like that will kind of fall by the wayside or are not noticed by the general public because really the main point of what he's saying is I want to see witnesses. So you're really listening to that and you're, and you're not really paying as much attention to for those of us that are standing in impartial judgment. So I thought that that was relevant. I thought that was important. And a shot across the bow to some other Republicans, particularly Lindsey Graham and folks like that. Then he went on to say this. And in that capacity, uh, I will maintain uh, impartiality to the extent I can. Senator, have you spoken to any of your Republican colleagues? Do you get the sense that more of them will be on board with voting for witnesses? Four of you need to say yes. Do you think there are four votes? I, I think it's uh, increasingly likely uh, that other Republicans will, uh, will join those of us who think we should hear from John Bolton. And whether uh, there are other witnesses and documents, well, that's another matter. But I think uh, John Bolton's relevance to our decision has become, has become increasingly clear. Do you think your colleagues, do you do your colleagues do have indicated that to you? I'm not going to speak for any other Republican uh, senators. But to, they have. To, You've had conversations? I, I have spoken with others who've uh, 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 pined upon this as well. Now, the important part there, other than he's making news in general, again, about witnesses, is that he references multiple senators, those of us that want to see witnesses or those of us that are open to it. Again, he's letting you know, subtly, if you're not paying attention, that he is not the only one that feels this way. And, you know, they follow up with the right questions and he doesn't want to give them up. But then he kind of reiterates again that he is not the only one. So I have made a prediction and I've, I've tweeted this out already that there are going to be more than enough votes to force the issue of witnesses or at least one witness. 
Um, I have no idea whether or not that's going to include witnesses such as Hunter Biden or something. But someone like a Mick Mulvaney or a John Bolton, I think, will be testifying or giving a deposition something. They will be involved in the trial is my prediction. And then I think there's going to be more than zero, but less than three that ultimately vote to remove him from office on the GOP side. I'm not one for predictions. I didn't think that Trump was going to win, and I was very wrong about that. I don't usually make them very often, but this was kind of a big deal. So I thought I'd take a stab at it. Now to wrap up the final bit on impeachment, Quinnipiac came out today with a poll that said 75% of voters want to allow witnesses in the Senate impeachment trial. 53% say that President Trump is not telling the truth about Ukraine. That's not good news for Trump, for Republicans, or for the administration. It might also be something that is shading or coloring the group of senators that Romney is talking about, which I believe at least includes Romney, Collins, Murkowski, maybe Cory Gardner. I think those are the ones that will push the topic of witnesses over the top. Now, Romney has said that he believes that if one side calls witnesses, the other side should call witnesses. I get that. My only caveat would be, because in theory, in general, that's a fair proposition, but it needs to be a relevant witness. Hunter Biden, I don't believe is a relevant witness. If Hunter Biden had relevance, this would have been a problem when Joe Biden was the vice president, when Joe Biden was the one that was tasked with helping get rid of this Ukrainian prosecutor, and while Joe Biden's son was on the Burisma board, when Republicans had control of the Congress. Jake Tapper even mentioned this. They didn't do it in, was it 14, 15, 16, 17, or 18? Now all of a sudden it's a problem in 2019. Now it needs to be looked at. Now Lindsey Graham wants to talk about a special counsel. Now Lindsey Graham wants to talk about maybe looking at it through Senate Judiciary oversight. And unfortunately, they have no credibility here. So when it comes down to witnesses, here's what Lindsey Graham is saying. I'll make a prediction. There'll be 51 Republican votes to call Hunter Biden, Joe, Joe Biden, the whistleblower, uh, and the DNC staffer at a very minimum. And I just see these comments as kind of a subtweet exchange between Romney and Lindsey, between the Romney faction of senators who are probably taking this more seriously and Lindsey Graham, who is, clearly is not. And something has happened to him ever since his best friend has passed. So it seems pretty obvious to me that Romney is speaking on behalf of a small group of senators who are taking the impartial justice piece very seriously. The Lindsey Graham, Joni Ernst, other folks that are not taking this seriously, the Mitch McConnells that are in lockstep with the administration all the way. This seems to be comments between senators to the press and they're speaking towards one another's faction. So Romney's saying, there's some of us that want to see witnesses. Then Graham is saying, well, there's going to be at least 51 votes to get these other witnesses. Romney's saying, well, you know, if you want a witness and then they get a witness, you know, that seems fair. So it's almost like if you read between the lines, a public negotiation of what this might look like, or they're at least staking out their claims. So I just wanted to give you that insight on how it is that I'm hearing their comments outside of the witnesses, no witnesses. It's almost the factions within the Republican Party talking to each other out loud for everyone to hear.
So moving on from impeachment, and I'm sure you're very happy to hear that, there was a story about some rockets being shot and actually hitting the embassy in Baghdad. And I was very concerned about that. Also very concerned to hear about the reports of a Air Force aircraft being shot down or otherwise crashing with insurgents taking credit for bringing it down. It's not clear to me yet, and I've been trying to find out what actually happened here. My concern is, of course, that this is somehow tied to a further escalation to the Soleimani killing. Don't know if that's true or not, but it is something that I am concerned about and hoping that it is not connected either from Iranian aggression or by Iranian-backed militias. So that's the story that kind of flew under the radar because of all this impeachment talk that I thought was important. There's a lot of talk in the news about this NPR reporter and Secretary Pompeo getting into it, or actually Secretary Pompeo getting into it with her. And what I'll say is that there's a vetting process that takes place up front. So when I was working for my boss in Congress, if someone wanted to interview or deliver remarks or invite to an event or anything like that, you vet the hell out of it, right? You want to make sure you're not sending your boss into some surprise or putting them in a situation that they don't want to be in. That is essentially your job as a staffer is always making sure your boss is okay with the situation that they're in. And when things go left, it's your job to know when it's time to step in. So an example of that would be whenever we were doing a town hall at the end, everyone wants to come up and say hello, or they want an autograph or they want a picture or a selfie or whatever. And after a certain amount of time, you start to get cues from your boss that they're done. You know, it's a, it's a certain phrase that they use. It's the way that they're interacting. There's things that you look for. And once you think that your boss has had enough, it's time to say, Congressman or Congresswoman, we're late for our next event. Or you have that phone call, you know, the conference call, whatever. You basically come in and you kind of save your boss and swoop them out of there, right? And that's when you can tell that they've had enough or when people are getting kind of pushy or you know, some people get really affectionate and it's kind of weird and some people aren't comfortable with that. So we had to know when to do that. So that's the context in which I'm looking at this Mike Pompeo situation. So there's an interview. The staff most likely did what they were supposed to do and cleared it ahead of time. To me, it's very unlikely that this reporter snuck in or did something regarding the Ukraine line of questioning that was not already cleared with staff. This reporter would risk their credibility they would probably not get assigned to certain high-level interviews. They might lose their job. You know, I mean, NPR is a pretty serious news outfit, so they probably don't take kindly to those types of things. She already has some credibility. It just really screams to me, just on its face, that it's very unlikely that she just threw curveballs at Pompeo. And she even mentioned that she cleared it with staff ahead of time very professional throughout, even when he was not being professional, she maintained her professionalism. And then to have a staff member come in once you see your boss is not happy and say, okay, thank you. Let's wrap it up. It's exactly what I was talking about a few minutes ago. And that is just in line with what any staff member is ever taught to do. That's just how it works. Things aren't going well. You start ushering people out. Trump starts getting asked questions that he doesn't like. The staffers in the room start screaming, thank you, goodbye, thank you. And they're screaming at Jim Acosta, okay, Jim, that's enough. And they're just screaming over the reporter's question, trying to usher them out. 
This is not something that's new. This is not some secret. If you've worked in this field at all, you see it from a mile away. You understand what's happening. And so this staffer comes in, ends the interview. The reporter thanks Pompeo. He doesn't say anything and then leaves to another room. Then the staffer brings the reporter into the room with Pompeo, a private room with no recording, and then berates her or yells at her for a very long time, is very unprofessional, is swearing, obviously is still angry from how things went earlier. And you can hear it. You can hear him in the interview. He's not happy about it. And this is not, if you've watched or paid attention to his remarks and his demeanor, this is not the first time that this side of Pompeo has come out. We just don't normally hear about what happens after. Usually the boss will yell at the staffer. How did you let that happen? Something like that. But instead, he took it out on this reporter, berated her, and then pulled out a map and had her try to find Ukraine on a map. That just tells you how childish and how angry he was, right? Everything about this situation screams professionalism on her part and unprofessionalism on his part. But he also does not deny what happened. He doesn't say, I never said that. I didn't yell at her. I wasn't angry with her. Instead, he attacks her credibility. He says that she lied, but he's not taking any responsibility for what he did. And he's also not denying that he did it. Pompeo is really just showing what I believe to be his true colors here in this instance. You know, another thing, speaking of uh, Pompeo, and I started thinking about foreign affairs. And then, of course, I mentioned those attacks on the Air Force aircraft or what I believe was an Air Force aircraft, and the embassy, I heard that the number went from 30-something of our troops that had traumatic brain injury up to 50. I saw that tonight on Paul Rykoff's Twitter feed. You recall I mentioned Paul. Follow him if you haven't. But, you know, that's one thing that really pisses me off about this president, not just his attacking Gold Star families like he did the Khan family, not just what he said about McCain, but think about someone that in order to save face, in order to minimize what actually happened, that the commander in chief said that there were no casualties, everyone's fine. But he mentions that a few people have some headaches. And then it turns out that there's, you know, a dozen, then two, three dozen people that have traumatic brain injury. And now it's up to 50. And he's playing it off like it's nothing. Not only that, but he does real damage to military culture. He does real damage to veterans. He does real damage to folks that do actually incur some type of serious injury or trauma or they have PTSD or something and they're just supposed to shake it off. They're just headaches. You know, push through it. Everyone else did. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do it? You know, this is actually very damaging to veterans. I have some personal experience with that. And also, I've seen it. And this is our commander in chief. So you'll forgive me if I don't mince words that he's an asshole. And since I'm already a little angry, I guess I'll close with a story that also kind of pissed me off. And that was the Supreme Court passing five to four, the wealth test, what they called public charge as it pertains to legal immigrants. So, you know, Trump, not only does he want to change how asylum works, he also wants to change legal immigration and he also wants to lower and has lowered significantly the number of asylum seekers that our country allows. Now, if you go back to him saying that Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers or whatever he said, but some of them I assume are good people. And when you combine that with the idea of the wall to keep these folks out, 
the idea of what he's doing to asylum seekers, bottlenecking them, that he wants to limit legal immigration, that he wants to he wants to tear families apart, separate children from their parents, and some of them won't ever even be reunited. That he doesn't want people coming from shithole countries, that he wants to know why we can't have more people from Norway or Sweden or whatever he said. Why he is adding these countries to his updated travel ban, which was his Muslim ban originally, to include African nations. You know, there are not a lot of non-African nations, non-Muslim majority countries. And so you can't just take this public charge piece as one thing in and of itself or as something that's just a cost-saving measure because in a vacuum by itself, I can understand the argument that someone wants to make that we don't want an immigration policy that, let's say, costs us too much money. I think that the facts don't bear that out, but if that was someone's case and the data supported it, that would be an argument to make. But this is not that argument. This is public charge impacting persons of color, poor immigrants from countries that he doesn't like, that he refers to as shitholes. And when you take that with what he's willing to do to families and and cutting down the asylum cap so that people from these countries that he doesn't care for aren't allowed to come here or just in much smaller numbers, that tells a more complete story than just the, we don't want folks coming here that use Medicaid. And what makes me so angry about that is all of the rhetoric, all of the evidence that shows that he's xenophobic, racist, and or bigoted. Pick one of them, pick all of them. It doesn't matter to me. All the evidence supports that. Very little of it supports that this is some type of government spending initiative. Look at the tax cuts. Look at the debt. Look at the deficit. What has happened under unified Republican government? Shout out to the dividest. Obviously, that whole fiscal responsibility thing was pretty much bullshit for the most part. I actually care about it. But you can't govern the way that you have governed as a Republican majority in both houses with the presidency shot up, ballooned the debt and deficit the way you have and said, but you know what? It's these immigrants and it's the public charge. That's where we're going to lay down the sword and really show our fiscal chops. This has more to do with what these people look like, what their last names are and what languages they speak and who they call God more than it does anything else. So when our ancestors came to this land and there was a wealth test, what do you think would have happened? Would you be here? Would your parents be here or your grandparents? I would think probably not. It only adds up to one thing. Okay, well, there it is. Not every centrist is an emotionless, spineless coward. Now, to my Twitter of the week, I actually want to redirect you to the previous episode, and that was the healthcare one. And I got a lot of good feedback on that, and I appreciate those of you reaching out and letting me know what you thought about it. And it wouldn't have been possible without the work of Dylan Scott, who works at Vox, and he covers healthcare for them. So I wanted to make sure that I yet again gave him the shout-out for the hard work he put in Dylan covers health for Vox.com. And he is at, at Dylan L Scott, D Y L A N L Scott. So give him a follow for all your healthcare journalism. He was a really great source. The whole Fox political 2020 issue suite of articles is actually really good. And I'll be using it moving forward. Dylan, I think has actually authored a few of those. So probably won't be the last you'll be hearing of his work on this show. Now, on the music side, we're going to drop back in another feature tune. And this, is, and this is actually a song by a very good friend of mine, Marco Montoya, here from the Bay Area. He's a great pianist. He plays salsa. 
you're about to hear that he plays smooth jazz as well, gospel. I mean, he's very talented, songwriter, arranger, can even sing a little actually. So this song is called Morning Jog, and it's by Smooth Jazz Alley, in which features Marco Montoya, and it is off of their first album called A Long Time Coming. So if you want to check them out, you can find them on Twitter at Smooth Jazz Alley, spelled the way it sounds. And I leave you with this track. I hope you enjoy it. Please go support their music and anyone else's that we happen to feature. And as always, take care of yourselves and one another.